chill as I do dirt on the down. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Welcome to this week's uh, episode of Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 mania. We have a very exciting uh, budget toward the end of the budget season. We're almost there, everybody. Yes. Uh, episode today. So but wait, wait. Welcome back, Jesse. We oh, missed yeah. you. Hey, I've been back. everywhere but here. But for strangely, like, not out of the country for once. I know. We missed you, though. I've Welcome back. Too. I'm now a whole year older. <laughs> Flirty 30s or something. I don't know. Ew. So before we get into a little bit of the topic, I want everybody, uh, our panel today, to introduce themselves. We have some special, special guests in addition yes. to the standard and amazing Francesca and Melissa and myself. Well, you know. We got cool people today. Who wants to start? No Who shade to any of our previous guests. Well, you know. It's fine. Sometimes there are favorites. <laughs> Speaking of, um, this is Chelsea Higgs-Wise uh, with Race Capital right here on WRIR. Come on right before these ladies, Wednesday at 10. I'm so excited to be here. And you've right, all- sister show. That's right. Yeah. The people don't have to hear you for two hours. <laughs> yep. So this is the second hour you get to hear me Welcome today. Welcome uh, Host of Race Capital and also a community facilitator. So hit me up. Cool. Uh, my name is Alan Shipman, fellow podcaster as well. Shameless plug, a difference in thought. Yay. Um, yeah, just friend friend of the pod, I would say. I, I at least would say. No one's confirming, but, you know. Maybe yes, that's absolutely. Right. I, 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 I confirm. You're yes, my Alice. friend. I thought that went without saying. <laughs> yeah. So um, I do organizing in faith spaces and also non-faith spaces as well around right. race, justice, Alan's and equity. been on Race Capital, so you right. all should yeah. be familiar. I did Jesus Good Friday in the criminal justice system and on Race Capital. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm Rich Marr. I'm boring. I teach politics at Randolph-Macon <laughs> College, and I write a blog called RVA Politics. Hey, friend. Today is definitely a Friends of Dirt show. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. But when we decided to talk, talk about this specific topic, this is everybody that I think um, I could possibly think of wanting in this conversation. So I appreciate yes. you all for coming in and lending your expertise welcome, for welcome. each of your own specific places mm-hmm. in Richmond. The conversation today, it's really starting with this budget thing. With the budget, there's a number of conversations we always hear this concept of two Richmonds, the RVA and the Richmond. I think that there's also two versions of conversations that we're having, mm-hmm. especially around budget. And when we have uh, the city council members very enthusiastically and vocally, a few of them, not all of them, but a couple of them talking about approaching this budget from an equity lens. You know, when we're seeing and what we're talking about seeing, sometimes I think we're not all speaking the same language and maybe there's some coded language and maybe there is some um, conscious but also unconscious long-standing uh, historic things and cloudy lenses not equitable lenses with racism especially in Richmond here so what we want to talk about today is really have an actual frank conversation but what is that second conversation and how can we all recognize these conversations in daily life but also recognize when maybe we as individuals mm-hmm. are on the verge of making an argument that isn't fully supported. And it's based off of instinct that we might not knowingly even realize is from longstanding racism and racist stereotypes. So that's really what we want to talk about. And part of it also started, we're going to start a little bit of academia, talking about how we got here, everybody, and kind of talking through um, what we think we've been seeing first with this budget. I know you, Rich, wrote a great uh, piece around the efficiency piece. So anybody that hasn't been listening to the uh, debate on the budget, there's been a big discussion around efficiencies because 
because people are very concerned with this bold budget from the mayor presentation about the tax increases because it was a, a very large budget that raised three taxes and I believe two taxes and a rate. Yes. Two taxes and a rate, that would be a pretty big impact across Richmond. It also had a very large investment and a number of very historically underfunded things that I think a lot of us feel are are a big part of conversations that we have at every election that we all think we're supposed to be going towards. So how is it that we end up in a place where we're having these debates and arguments that are completely different and as soon the, as it comes time? This is the first time that we've actually had, like you said, these things come up every election cycle. This is the first time we've had a budget that sprinkled a little bit on all of them. About time. Some I'm curious, yeah. like, what, what got you, um, what did you see that started you down writing that piece for your blog? Well, my lane, I generally try to take ideas and insights from political science and translate it into what's going on in my actual environment and the environment of people around me, my community. Uh, and it's just so plain to me, like this longstanding bureaucratic myth, right, which is the hmm. idea that bureaucrats are lazy, bad workers, right? And it is a, a, a longstanding idea in public sector funding and, and public sector employees that they're worse at their jobs than private sector employees. And studies just show that's just not true. There may be some difference in motivation, right? Public sector workers might be into more mission rather than profit. But in general, workers like to do a good job and generally are dedicated to their work. And we just don't have a lot of evidence that they're bad at their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, now, granted, there's some inefficiencies in city government, but there's inefficiencies everywhere, right? The, the idea is that government workers are, are the, the Comcast of, <laughs> of employees. Like, they're always like that. And, and you can't ignore the history of, of race and how that works because public sector employees, we're not usually talking about, when, when people have this image, when you're talking earlier, Jesse, about the sort of the stories or the kinds of stereotypes that we play on, right? The, the big story that people always think of is like the DMV worker or the, that yeah. person in the dingy office who doesn't care and it's just lazy. Well, what does that person look like, mm -hmm. right? It's not the same image that people have of a, of a fire chief Right or we, we even though there may be even more inefficiency in a, like the fire department or mm -hmm. the police department, that's not the complaint that people make. It's always these these workers downtown. They don't pay attention to us. They don't listen. They're not working hard. The schools, the workers in the schools, the mm. teachers, they don't do it. Well, it's not my teacher, but it's it's the, just the schools in general. Well, and that specific thing. I mean, there is actually in the discussion they decided to cut 1.5 percent across all city departments, mm -hmm. but they excluded police and fire from that. Yep. And part of that acknowledgement is saying that, yeah, it's a 1.5% average if you go across all departments, but the size of the fire and police department means that these other departments ended up getting like 4%, gonna, I right. think, at the end. Ouch. Right. And they're they're insulated for, you know, maybe for obvious reasons. It's not just the kind of hero story about, you know, our law enforcement and our fire department. It's also about the kind of people who ended up in those departments uh, and the kind of people in just in cities in general. Like, uh, whenever I, I kind of talk about this stuff. I mean, not that I don't care about Richmond and that I haven't been paying attention for the decade I've been here, but this is stuff that just, we're talking about cities in general. This is how cities work. Mm -hmm. Fire departments, police departments were taken over by, uh, you know, Irish immigrants, Italians, and and the stereotype of Officer O'Malley grew out of these sort of urban machines. Yep. And and that's true even in Southern cities where public sector workers, when, when they fought, 
when the civil rights movement finally fought to take back power in, in urban areas. I mean, part of, of civil rights wasn't just about the vote. It was about getting responses from cities, mm-hmm. getting cities to actually treat them like real citizens and, and serve their needs. How do they do that? Well, in part by by getting into jobs, like right. by using civil service to, to get into positions. But they were still limited in where they could go with that. And so the bureaucracy, right, the offices that run the city, public works, utilities, um, social services, those are all staffed often by African-Americans, by people of color. And and that stereotype of, well, they're the ones who don't care, the ones who don't work hard. I mean, that that overlays very nicely with a longstanding stereotype about lazy, shiftless, idle blacks, right? That's that's mm-hmm. that's how they are. It's been the same since that's why you had to whip them to get them to work hard, right? That's the story. Speaking of that, I know, Alan, you were mentioning a few things you've been reading lately where we talk about it from a political side of it, but this is also a broader historical context. Yeah, for sure. Man, so before I get to that, something that you were saying reminded me of something that I read in um, Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And he talks about where a lot of this shiftless, lazy worker actually thing uh, stereotype came from is because when the unions and a lot of the work of the mentor of Oliver Hill and Thurgood Marshall, Charles Hamilton Houston, wasn't just an education space, it was in a labor space as well. And how do you get people into like the unions who are locking people out? So all these unions were locking out hard working black people. And so they would literally be during cuts, they would then just have to go pretty much to like contract work, right? 1099 work. So they would stand on the side of the road actually waiting for work, saying like, hey, do you need whatever? I can undercut this, whatever. So they were actually out there trying to hustle for their family. But as they moved more and more into the suburbs because of just the lack of, I guess, who where they got picked up, people would drive by and like, oh, look at these lazy, shiftless people. But really it was due to racism and unions and actually these cuts in in the name of efficiency, right? That actually hurt black families. But no, I think it's I think it, this is a, a trend and a stereotype that goes back to like, like, like 12 80 BC or whatever you read like the book of Exodus or whatever where like Pharaoh's like oh you got all the guys are gonna make bricks out of straw and then like they're saying like this isn't right we can't actually like operate on these circumstances and it's like oh it's because y'all are idle y'all aren't working hard enough uh, and then the book um the half has never been told it talks about um how the slave market worked with an American and really built the backbone of the capitalism mm-hmm. and he talks about uh, as he calls it weights and whips where this was this relationship between people being in cruel environments and not having enough resources to actually work and we're actually the, in the name of efficiency, they actually made people less efficient, right? So if someone comes in and, you know, doesn't, hasn't met their weight or whatever, how many pounds of cotton they're supposed to pick that they haven't, like, been paid to do under these harsh conditions, if you whip them... I'm going to be less efficient the next you're day. You're literally less efficient <laughs> the next day, right? But it's all done in the name of efficiency. So there is this point where, if, where, where things that are done in the name of efficiency actually make things less efficient if efficiency is actually what you care about. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it's just a way of demonizing the other and historically people of color just to say that the mask kind of this this more sinister racist undertone. Alan just took us all the way back to before Christ. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't ready for BC. <laughs> Can we when, just pause when, at that? When I said history, I was anticipating 1800s. You weren't expecting that far back, were you? <laughs> BC. He bought the receipts. Before I love the common receipts. era, you know? Yes. Okay, I go mean, ahead. As, like, can I just go back? Remember the beginning <laughs> when I said that these are the three individuals that would be very specific for this conversation? That's exactly why. This is why. Like, this cat went and got the whole good book <laughs> on the history. Okay. 
that's his favorite air to talk about. <laughs> hey, oh, well, that that racist targeting that you're kind of that we're talking about in the labeling. It also just as a native Richmonder reminds me of the superintendent conversation. Having a white superintendent, this was again what I was hearing when the conversation was coming about what the school board looked like, what RPS looked like at the top, and how it was inefficient and how it wasn't doing a good job, and they were lazy, and it was all the nepotism. But we knew at the top what RPS looked like. And so when we were having the shift of what's going to come in, come in and clean it up and do different things, I knew then that our school board was looking for somebody that looked different at the top as well. So I hear these historical things and just being and watching Richmond, this is nothing new, right? Because right. it's current, it ain't new. Right. And that's not even helping. Now we've set the stage for a little bit of this is that we've selected three clips of points that have happened in this budget discussion. And we have the audio. We're going to go through them one by one so that everybody can hear them. Um, And then we're going to talk about some of the dynamics in them. So before we get into these clips, I do want to be very clear that the the goal of this conversation is to recognize the fact that uh, these are common themes that are prevalent throughout Richmond. This is not about any one person in particular, because I think these are arguments and debates that we we can read on Facebook comments. We can hear in our own heads. You can see them and in, in, you can see where there's a, a legitimate place where, to Alan's point, if we're actually talking about efficiency, that's one thing. But we have to figure out how to recognize when we're talking about these coded languages things. So what we wanted to do is pull three examples where we can really talk about like what we're all hearing in these and from our experiences. And um, then also just talking about how can we also improve this conversation? Because at the end, we're going to talk through where do we go from here? Because this ain't it. And we could literally do the same thing with last year's budget and the year before that and the year before that when you had different people, a different group of people at the table. Same thing. And I think the big thing, though, is that to this point, I don't know we would have had the same roundtable the past few years because the proposed increases, specifically the property tax increase, made it amplified every conversation of dog whistle racism. It's everybody talking around it and it just exacerbated it. So I think that's also why this year, even though we're not raising the property tax this year, there has to be at some point, how do we have a conversation? With that, our first clip is from the very beginning of budget season, and this is from when Mayor Stoney presented his budget. So this is really something that I think set the tone for the rest of budget season and is one of the most jarring moments for my memory of this budget. I was actually at my office doing work and getting text messages from my father who lives in Chesterfield about the things that were happening at the Richmond City (laughs) budget meeting in the middle of the day. This is actually at the end. It's about a 30 minute presentation. And just so you all know, it's a work session with council. And so it is a formal meeting. He is standing in front of council um, presenting this budget to them. It's like a 30 minute presentation. And then at the end of it, council proceeds with their regular meeting. And so this is the very end where he's closing. The council members have reactions. I'm just wanting to first... I didn't know we were taking questions, Madam President. We will have, at most, comments. We reserve our work sessions for the deep dive in these budgets. And so I will ask if there are comments, uh, brief comments from any members that we will do that in this moment. And then we will reserve. And you should have before you the work plan. Our first session will be Monday. Are you saying that I'm not going to be on Madam President. Okay. Madam President. Madam President. Okay, just one second. Wait a minute. No, everybody. 
This is a presentation of the budget for the city. What I just said is that you may have a comment, but we will all do that in order. That is it. And so, Ms. Trammell, please proceed with your comment. Mayor, you said that you were not going to raise taxes when you ran for mayor. How did you, sit, how did you stand up here with all of us and do this to the people? Yeah, you must sit there and have a bank clap for you because you're talking about the schools, the children, and, and everything else. You you can laugh all you want, but I'll take right then. You won't be laughing much longer because this is not funny what you're doing to the people. You talk about the poor people. You talk about the poor people. Why don't you come out there and see them struggling to try to pay these real estate taxes, to try to pay these utilities, and also you want to help say that the people don't have to live in the city. How much money did that take away from the city? How many dollars did that take away? Ms. Travel, uh, thank he you for is your not, comment. This is not fair for him to be able to sit there and laugh. I hope that God, this is your last laugh. Okay, so that was the first clip. I think that there's a number of things to start, though, if we can focus on what dynamics that we're kind of seeing at play here and like specifically maybe some power dynamics. One of the first things that I noticed is the interruption, not waiting until people are done clapping for the meeting to resume. It's out of order. This this meeting is run by uh, Robert's Rules of Order. And so the current president, who is a newly uh, seated black woman, is cut off and is not allowed to assume control over her meeting and, and struggles to keep control has to continue to do this and that this is not the first time mm-hmm. that this has happened. I believe the f- very first meeting where she was the newly seated president, we had several interruptions and just total disrespect of her. This has happened at every meeting since January 1, mm-hmm. 2019. That And I've seen her be complimented on the grace that she has during this. Yes. Talking, speaking about dynamics and black women in leadership having to be armed and masked with such grace when confronted with disrespect Mm -hmm. and how their voice has to be presented in such a way for it not to be labeled. The black, uh, loud, angry black woman. All of that. Yes, yes. You talked about power dynamics and Robert's rule. When we heard the administrator that was summoned back up he did address the proper person. Yes, right? he did. So understanding who's still able to maintain order, even in times of people's, you know, really pushing emotions. Mm-hmm. Black people in power have been armed and trained to maintain that posture. You better. Right. You better. <laughs> I think that's something also to note toward the end when she she's talking about the laugh. Because if you've watched the video and also if you just are, I think, a human being when you're in an uncomfortable situation, a, a reaction. Have that nervous laugh. like, <laughs> And it wasn't, it's a smile. And I think yeah. when we talk about just defense smiling, mechanisms. trying to keep composure. And stay friendly. When you have someone saying, that'll be your last laugh. Oh. I bet you won't laugh too much longer. Is that because a, a noose is coming? I'm not sure. I don't know. But I was I was extremely uncomfortable with that comment. Yeah, because it, it was it was very um, threatening. It was very threatening. I think that that's where it's taking a step back to talk about it and hearing and recognizing where it comes off. Because even if you mean it in theory, an innocent way, you're still a leader saying that to another leader. And I don't whatever color you are to make a th- that sounds like a threat to it's me. It's a threat. It, it don't sound like one. It is a threat. It is capital E is every part about that was entitlement, was privilege, was the interruption, was the this was supposed to be about 
about comments, but the questions were coming, right? right? I mean, the first things out that we heard were, were the questions, why did you do this? How could you do this? It was the attacking moment. First with, question was, where do you live? Mm-hmm. Right. That's actually, it was, it was before, yeah. I didn't even hear that one. Where do you live? It was, and it was questioning renterships versus home ownership also, which I think that the, that's the, a, the property owner dynamic is yeah. another power dynamic and in the city. That's been prominent on this council, this mm-hmm. this cycle. And and just even the, just where does that emotion, the, like that that anger and the the sort the sort of outrage at what the mayor was proposing. I mean, what what is the what is the outrage to to raise taxes to try to pay for government? I mean, that's something that government does. Right. And we revenue. have limited revenue sources. Rule. Yeah. So uh, you know, completely understand disagreement, completely understand uh, you know opposition, but but where does the outrage come from from just a budget proposal? And and in this context of where the mayor was literally invited to the city council meeting to present this budget. So that that kind of reaction is certainly it's not inexplicable, but it's certainly not appropriate for the the venue, right? Right. Uh, I mean, I think it really lacks cultural awareness. I mean, to say to especially a, a black political leader that this will be your last laugh or I hope, oh, you won't be laughing much longer. And I hope to God this is your last laugh. Just understanding the historical struggles of black political leaders who have been assassinated and killed. Like one of the people that I think of, Benjamin Franklin Randolph, I think in like 1866, um, he's actually in, from South Carolina, congressman, actually responsible for why we have a public education system. And ironically, he actually was the person that pushed to make sure that non-land owning men could vote. Now, he still left the women out, hmm. which is a problem. He's the first black person in South Carolina elected during Reconstruction. Not too long after that, he actually was killed by Klan members as he was boarding a train. So there's like real history behind that where black people have taken risks to push true equity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, probably sh- she should have had the women in there too, but you get what I'm saying. Push yeah. the ball forward towards equity that have gotten death threats and those death threats were real, yeah. right? So, you you know. And you talk about cultural un- unawareness. To me, it was spot on awareness of being under understanding what can be sparked with that sort of statement, that fear, that right. maintain your place, boy. Right. I was had that, I was going to say, we've had that issue come up before already, though. Wasn't this same person? Didn't we have this issue come up with apparently threatening a black member of the black male member of council? Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. And the other member changed his phone number mm-hmm. and, and formally filed a report. Because and then there was issues at the retirement conversation yep. because they didn't get a phone call back because how there's no way it was me. One question I have, though, so starting off budget deliberations like this with a minute, minute and a half of very, very, uh, I don't even know what to characterize the comments Vitriolic? as. Hmm. Yeah, like that level of anger towards a proposal. Like what is, how does that impact the budget debate? Oh, that starts it off right on a contentious note and it doesn't end. Right. And I mean, it reminds me of the, the national conversation, right, of a leader having outrage and being able to influence followers and be able to spark people's rage and naivety to follow along Firing with Firing up the base. Yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. that's what, it, to me, it's very dog whistle. It, it, I was going to say, it was dog whistle. It was these poor right. people can't, these poor people can't, these poor people can't, you said you weren't, how dare could you, this isn't funny, this will be your last laugh. And then turning it to... A, a dynamic of 
you're laughing as almost an attack to where now it's also an affront of saying as a white individual, this is a black person that's attacking me because they're laughing at me. And like what that specifically does is a dog whistle for people that are around the city of a supporter base. And I mean, the the natural response that we've been conditioned to to protect white women, right? It's not just about the race, it's that race gender piece of the most protected person in America. And if you're not, if you're not looking at this, if you, we played an audio clip, but if you've ever, if you haven't seen the video, you would think that, you know, he was gallivanting across the dais, like laughing. He's actually seated. He'd actually given his presentation and sat down and the comments at the beginning were, you know, come back up here, get back, get back up here. He comes back up and addresses the president properly. And then he takes his seat again. And it's this, you're laughing at me. When clearly it was a nervous, I'm just trying to keep the peace. Well, even if it wasn't, smile you, even if it face. wasn't, right. the res- counter response to that was still out of place. We're not even talking about, you know, what the councilman's motivations were or state right. of mind, right? This is all about the context. Um, you know, th- th- we could have a, a separate conversation about her as a person or what she's trying to accomplish but you don't even need to talk about that to nope. talk about the damage that this kind of episode can have on on the budget about the and just how easy it is I mean, we've we talked about you know half a dozen different narratives about white women about black men about black women and just how easy it is to trigger those how easy yep. it is to bring them mm-hmm. to bear and and activate them in in people's minds because they're just they're they're so dominant they're so prevalent right. and and it's people of color particularly just have to work so hard to undermine those narratives uh, and and how how quickly just just uh, you know a 30 a, a, a two-minute episode at this thing mm-hmm. just kind of throws it all out and, and brings all that stuff back. Same dynamic with the retirement piece. You know, why didn't Chief Durham call me? I called him. He never called me back. And then I didn't do anything to that other council person. He used the F word at me. It's like, you know, why am I not being... <laughs> these Centered. two black men are, are yeah. treating me bad, poorly. Right. Yeah. These two black bureaucrats are just doing me so bad. That was the beginning of the budget deliberations. And now going towards the next clip that we have, it's now fast forward to the end. We've now gone through uh, all of the budget discussions. There has been some very, very tense moments. Uh, There are things that I think all of us can say were not appropriate on all sides of uh, the debate. I think everybody, again, can do better. But we're coming in at the last budget work session where they're trying to finally figure out how do they come to an agreement. And they're talking about an item that has been cut previously that they want to bring back up. And it's been an item that's been in the news a lot, GRTC, uh, the expansion. There's been a lot of criticism of certain council members for voting against this and cutting it out of the budget Mm -hmm. because it was a negative impact to their individual districts. And they were voting for things that were harming, directly harming their Their districts. districts. So people had been a little bit um, upset about that. There's also some things where they're concerned with uh, GRTC that will probably play into some other narratives. So if we can go to that clip. I just want to say that... um, I don't appreciate what was on the news the other day about about um, GRTC, about certain council members trying to cut the funding and all that. When I was in church yesterday, I was approached by s- some people that were very upset about us cutting the funding and, you know, about using um, people of color. You know, people of color, they pay taxes with utilities, with um their, their homes, whatever. And when I asked them, I said, well, what are we supposed to cut? What do we not, you know, do you want us to go ahead and raise the real estate tax? Maybe a dollar twenty, dollar twenty-five, dollar twenty-nine. 
and said, no. And the next thing you know, it's a big discussion. No, we don't want you to do that. Do you want us to raise the utilities? No, we pay enough now. We're paying way too much. I said, cigarette tax? They said, no, because, you know, we don't want Philip Morris to pull out of here or, or lay people off or our retirement. Some of our family members have retirement from there. We're, we're afraid it might affect that. I said, then tell me, what am I supposed to do? She said, the schools are not handling the money right, and we don't think that the mayor and administration and you, you all are being overseeing our money correctly. And I said, then still tell me, what are we supposed to do? I said, we thought about, you know, going, you know, cutting 1%, 1.5% across the board with, they said, well, that's where you need to start. Because we think that we're sick and tired of hearing in the paper how much money people make and that we're thinking that people are hiring their family members, their friends, and all of that to be in these different positions, making over a hundred and some thousand dollars. And then you could have hired two or three people in utilities or public works or whatever, instead of all these, it's too much, it's too heavy at the top, from the police department to the fire department. And also someone said last night to me that called me and wouldn't give me their name, but said, do you know how much waste is in every department? How much they throw away? Different items? from different departments and I said I don't I don't know who, who keeps track of that because city council doesn't do you know how many time how many pothole machines are you seeing out on the street recently where are they all at are they all broken down again because every year they either use an excuse that it's been raining they haven't been able to do this or that where are all those employees when it's raining what are they doing where are they but I'll tell you right now, I don't appreciate because I care about everybody, everybody. And I know that people need to get back and forth to work. But when Kim sits there for 30 minutes and talks about the, the people riding free on the bus, I even asked the lady in church, do you ride the bus for free? She said, no. I have to walk because they moved my bus stop. I have to walk further to get on the bus. But no, I don't ride for free. And then I said, well, when was the last time GR GRTC increased the fares? Well, we can't pay what we're paying now, $1.50. You know, there's a lot of things that, that's, you know, and I know, our, I know we're upset about this because every year we get upset over the budget. But it's not right to try to single out certain members that we, because we don't vote for something or we disagree, that we're not for all the people. We're for all the people. And like I said, you have to take in, in consideration, you know, we sit there and say our seniors, we worry about our seniors not being able to live in their homes and not being able to pay the utilities because every week I get somebody calling me that have gotten their water cut off, almost gotten a, or, or, or in a, they get a disconnection notice. So I don't. I don't want to sit here all day long and be talking about the same things and go all the way back like we do every year. Let's go back and revisit this. Let's go back and revisit that. Let's put it all out on the table and don't get on the news and say certain council members are, are, are not for, for people of color because I'm for all people of color. You're in the middle of another fantastic episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. We were willing, we came. 
was a lot to unpack. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to ask the question of the room. I think that there's a number of different dynamics that we can talk about. Um, One that I know is uh, very close to my heart is talking about the role of white allies. I want to also ask the question of put it out there. Is there another place we want to start? Well, you know what? Let's pause that for a second. Let's stay on the same vein that we're talking about because what you want to talk about is probably the most important piece of this. And I don't, I don't even want to get the rest of the stuff mixed up in there. So let's 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 get these other power dynamics and this narrative pushing that we have and, and this stuff out of the way. And then we're going to connect it back to the white allyship. Alan, you know you want to say, say something. We all right looking now. at you, we're Alan. Looking out. We're waiting. For I mean, if you don't want to, it's a lot in there. Even when she's talking about the person that she was talking to at church or whatever, when she was saying, "Do you want us to raise the cigarette tax? What if Philip Morris leaves?" Right? Like protecting Philip Morris versus protecting city workers or teachers who need a raise, right? And it's either the poor versus the poor, but we're not gonna holler at Philip Morris, right? We're mm-hmm. not gonna be about that. But like, if you understand the history of like city council and the history of tobacco, right? When the tobacco, you know. Right, during slavery when the tobacco whatever industry wasn't popping like it used to be mm-hmm. and actually owning people in the slave trade became the more profitable market in 1842 city council actually passed a law that said that they were going to have slave traders actually register so that they could tax them and make money off of the slave trade when you see this mm. this this history here i'm sorry right? stop wait <clears throat> can you say that again that's property yeah. tax. Yeah. Okay. We were literally, yeah. Property tax. Property I just tax. went on and said that for yeah. you. Yeah. Property tax. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, because we regarded it as property. So, I mean, like, just the, that this this same body, right? We're coming from the same body that put a tax on people as property, right? And was willing to profit off of that. And we um, still stuck on property. And we still stuck on property, right? And who owns property makes the decisions. But go ahead. At what point... And if you want to talk about equity and talking about who was out there getting whipped and traded in order to make the tobacco industry pop like that, right? Why are we still choosing tobacco industry over the people that were literally property back then that the same council decided to... Well, not the same. You mean, they weren't alive back then, but you mean like you talk about bodies, institutions, systems, right? Are still approaching... It's either going to be poor people that are working for schools or it's going to be poor people that are trying to stay within their house. Like, why are those the options, right? Because she doesn't know what to do. she, like that's the thing that killed me is hearing her take this well I just what else do you want me to do I have no other options well and, and even to take it a bit further it's it still perpetuates the ignorance of the person who she's talking to mm-hmm. well what else do you want me to do you want me to raise the this tax you want me to raise that tax you want me to do this well you don't want that you don't want to pay no extra money so I mean what's the solution there? what do you want me to do my hands are tied mm-hmm. right. and she's baiting the things that are culturally aligned with us right the cigarette tax utilities things that when I she didn't ever said what this person looked like that she talked to at church but the way the narrative the way she talked about them the mm-hmm. the aspects that she's picking up the fear tactics that she's talking about I know that this is a person of color yeah and then later she she talks about you know well I'm I'm for all the people all because all lives matter 
something that stuck out to me too was the fact that what she she got the other person that she was speaking to to buy into the stereotype that rich you were talking about earlier with efficiencies yep and they immediately jumped to yeah you're right cut it because they aren't doing what they need to do and Mm -hmm. thinking about the role and and, and buy into the role the 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 solution that council wants to push right but and and this is this is a council person reporting at a council meeting to defend her own actions mm-hmm. about what supposedly a constituent said to her. And when we listened to it, I think we were thinking, how much of this is the council person? How much of this is the actual constituent? I mean, it's a big mishmash of of a lot of different stories and ideas about you know the the lack of of solutions in urban government, the lack of resources, and and nothing to be done about it, and the the need to ally with our most powerful powerful corporate uh, partners in order to do anything at all. I mean, it, it doesn't reflect sort of a thoughtful approach to this budgeting problem. That was right? a very coincidental-ass conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Cover all those topics <laughs> at church. Yeah, And it's also like... But, so, sorry, what? really quick. Oh, I yeah. think that that's a great point, though, also of saying when we're talking and saying that this is a relayed conversation, ultimately, this is just what she wants to say. And she's using the voices of people of color to support mm-hmm. what she wants to say, mm-hmm. because she's also not saying all of the other conversations she's had. It's very much of picking and choosing. Mm-hmm. And to the point what of it's, it's a little unclear about what is it the same person or these different conversations. There's different phone calls. So. It's really the story that she wants to tell. And we can't forget that it started as an attempt to defend herself against media reports that criticized her for doing exactly what she did, which is cut funding to public transit. So I don't like these media reports that call me me out for doing the thing that I did. Uh, That then launches all this set of narratives. Because now I'm having to justify people face to face that are living this reality. Yeah, because because I'm for all people of, of colors. So and from there. What, and from what I heard from what she said, the constituent said, it seemed like a great case for why GRTC needed to be expanded because this person said, do you ride the bus? I said, nah, I, I lost my bus stop. Right. Like, so I have to actually have to yeah, walk. I'm not, I'm not riding the bus for free. I can't even ride the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even ride the bus. No, I don't. <laughs> to me, it would seem like a good case for why this would be a good investment for, for huh. your community. And, you know, just that what I forgot to say when I was talking about what happened in 1842 was actually like in the 18. 18- 30s, um, there was a guy named Thomas Jefferson Randolph who actually was arguing that emancipation should should happen like at that time during the 30s. And they hit him with the, well, I'm just not sure that's what the people want, right? What people? Uh, uh, <laughs> right. People. <laughs> right. So he just saying, they basically said, oh, well, I want to hear from more of my constituents. I'm not sure if that's good. And so actually uh, during that time where they were waiting to hear actually um, sentiments toward slavery, uh, people were more about it. And so that's why by that time, instead of working part about emancipation, which was an option on the table, mm-hmm. then they already ended up, how can we profit off of the back of the system? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just about, well, my constituents, I heard, you know, hmm. instead of doing what's the moral thing to do. I, I think that that's actually transitioning to the, the for all people and talking about allyship. Mm-hmm. There we go. Because it's a very natural place to go. Because so me speaking as somebody that is a white person that speaks a lot about race. Mm -hmm. And hearing a lot of the things that she was saying, it it was tough to listen to for me because it it was exactly her taking other people's words, people of color's words, and using them to support her own narrative. And when we say, well, I need to talk to my people, I need to talk to my constituents, that's also invalidating the very real concerns and experiences of the Black people that you don't want to believe Mm -hmm. because that narrative supports something that you don't agree with. And I think going to the constituents and her having this conversation 
of, well, what do you want me to do? It's not an ally. It's a bully, honestly, because Mm. you're telling somebody there is no other option. There is no other choice. And in a power dynamic where historically as white people, we have been in a leadership role. I think that there's also a generational response that's a learned response and behavior from a lot of really, really bad and horrific things that white people have done to people of color. And that's a dynamic of that you're playing into whether you mean to or not and allowing and accepting it to happen by taking on this response because you know that you're setting up a place where a person of color is going to back down and they're going to agree with you. They're going to say, well, you're right. There's nothing else we can do because you are, at the end of the day, the white person that they elected to represent them. And you're sitting there talking every day about how you're for the people, you're for everybody. So that must mean them too. And it must be something that's wrong with them as to why they're not reaping the benefits. And and Mm. what makes this even more outrageous is it comes up in the context of uh, a city council decision to cut funding from GRTC in which they didn't have a discussion about the importance of public transit and what's what kind of how an equitable way to fund it. They had a, a, a conversation about fare stealing. Like the idea was that the people who ride the bus are criminals and mm-hmm. we need to prosecute them. And yep. GRTC is not doing a good enough job at rooting out all the evildoers who ride the bus. That was the conversation. And so it ended up with, well, let's take away some money from them because they don't deserve it. That's not that's not listening. That's not, especially after a year in which they have redone the GRTC system. system and taken away so many stops already. Right. To, to understand That's the Richmond way. They did it to the schools. They do it to our neighborhoods. They. That's, that's why, honestly, you can't talk about an equity lens unless you're willing to listen and understand the reality to see what you're looking at. Since we're on this point of like the fair ceiling, if we could also move to that next clip that actually expands on this discussion a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait, before before we pause this, I want to take um, a break, a time out because it's important for us to do this and be uh, uh, transparent about it. We just talked about what bad allyship in quote may look like but it's a good point for us to to call it like we see it i'm so blessed to have you in my life as a white ally and i mean it from the bottom of my heart because it means so much to me jesse that you fight for the things that we're talking about in an honest way and it means so much to me because the people who are affected by the trauma that we're talking about don't have to stand up in those conversations. We have the opportunity to sit back because we have I know that I have a strong ally that will stand up and do that. And so it's important for me to, to make that loud and say that loud to you while you can hear it and to everybody that listens to our show, because that's so important. And we're quick to tell people when they do something wrong. But and you don't always get it right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'll catch you when you don't. But it's the point that you in the fight to get it right, not just in the fight to be heard. And so I love that about you. So thank you so much for your your allyship in that 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 issue. I, I love you for that. Now we can go forward. Well, I just want to say thank you, though. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the grace that so many people of color extend to me because I don't get it all right. And I think that's something that as an ally to recognize is that you're not going to. You mm-hmm. have to admit when you're wrong. Mm-hmm. I'd also process. like to say... Um, that Fran has now made me cry on our show for the first time ever. <laughs> I'm always the person that's awkwardly sitting there like, this I is uncomfortable. So thank you, Fran. We cry. This is the Together. moment, y'all. <laughs> Guys, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with emotion. I, <laughs> I'm perfectly comfortable with I don't know. What <laughs> Just right. lean in. It's fine. Uh, all right. Okay. okay. All right. So this is actually uh, Councilwoman Kim Gray that comes in uh, right after Reva in the same budget meeting and uh, also has some added commentary about the GRTC conversation specifically. Thank you. 
Ms. Trammell. Ms. Gray? So process-wise, we are, we are up against a timeline. And, you know, when I tried to introduce stuff, everyone came back to process. This is what – so to say that, hey, let's revisit these things that we've already gone through, let's get to the end and whatever's left, we go back and look at what didn't get funded and prioritize it that way. I don't think it's a, a fair process that brings up an item that a particular person wanted to fund that didn't get funded by the majority to say, hey, we're going to have a, a, an elongated conversation about it. We are, we are up against a timeline here, and we need to move forward, get to the bottom line, find out how much revenue we have. I'd like to know, you know, I'd like to be able to make sure those route expansions happen. Um, but we can't keep being held hostage by GRTC. They get $15 million. They're paying a contractor, and I've heard they've extended that contract for another year. More money, $400,000. But not one citation has been issued. Why are we paying for that? That's half of the route expansion, close to half of it. So, you know, everything we do is more nuanced, and I am getting tired of the tweets and the attacks and the race baiting because I care about the 85-year-old woman of color who's trying to stay in her home in my district whose husband died and she can't afford to pay her taxes. So, I mean, there there's all sides to this, and everything that we fund has to be paid for somehow. And we keep going back to our residents and saying we need more, more, more. But there are so many people at a breaking point. I got a call from a gentleman in your district. His house is falling in. He doesn't have the money to fix it. And he said with this tax increase, he will be forced to sell. He's been in his home for generations. And it's sad. So it's that we're not saying $1.29 for all white affluent people in the city. So it's a ridiculous argument to say that we're against people of color when we don't fund something. Everyone has to pay, and everyone pays equally. That's where the equity comes in. Yeah, so that was our uh, last clip of the evening. Huh. What dynamic? Is there is there is there a dynamic that we haven't explored that we want to speak to? We haven't really talked about home ownership yet. There was efficiency, efficiency, efficiency written all over that. We've talked about that a little bit, but yeah, the, this isn't attacking white affluent, you know, homeowners. This is equity across the board. Everybody pays the same amount of taxes. Well, not exactly. That's not equity. That's right. And when those seniors were younger, who could actually legally buy homes to actually build that type of wealth? That too. And their parents as well. Is that generational wealth building you're talking about? What? There? No, I'm pretty sure people There just... that not be ever entered into the conversation of equity. Not black people concerned. Can we talk about home ownership and all of the different... I can think of so many times in specific instances in policy and history where it's specifically set up so that white people are owning homes far more frequently than people of color in Richmond, especially. I don't understand, you know, how we can ignore that part of this discussion when we're talking about saying, well, everybody pays the same. So that's equal because everybody pays the same, which is to Chelsea's point. What is equity? To me, that's such an obvious thing. But is it because people don't know the his points of history? Because I'm talking about things like realtors having agreements to not sell homes to black people Covenantal in Highland restrictions. Park. 
Yeah, HOAs. And having those covenantal restrictions upheld by the Supreme Court until about the 40s. And then after that, then FHA, VA, all the GI bills, all those other types of things just said, okay, we'll leave the same type of guidelines. We're going to just continue to push throughout. USDA and Outland and making it impossible for farmers to maintain their lands, their crops having to sell land. I think also slum clearance. When we talk about Uh the the historic part of slum clearance, we're making way for highways because it was a a statement on, well, where, where you're living is a slum and we'll put something better there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not valuable. And that's like a nationwide playbook. For the listeners, if you want to read a book called uh, the, De- the Detroit School Busing Case by Joyce Bow, B-A-U-G-H, she lays out literally like what the playbook is from the covenantal restrictions, right, to then creating concentrated places of where, so no, actually, actually them being interspersed, the type of violence and mob violence that then like drove people out. And then due to white people having race rights saying, oh, maybe this is a bad idea. So now we're going to, now we're going to actually like drive, put people to one side of the neighborhood. Then when it becomes beneficial, we'll drive a highway through that place. Uh, But that still lets white people use the interstate to go and have access and jobs there. And then we'll Mm -hmm. just because, and then we'll just build whatever slums or sometimes build places for low income white people. And then just let black people find out where they're going to live and just, and then at the next, once the white people move out and we prevent them away to the suburbs and the black people can live there and then just having that concentrated poverty. And then, and then when you look at how it works in the employment sector of then keeping people to low wage jobs, locking people out of unions, uh, really having like a cement ceiling of let's make sure they're not in, in position, promoted to positions where they can actually afford a house. So then they mm. can't kind of have, so it's like this long behind playbook of how you create these types of conditions and mm-hmm. Thurgood Marshall warned that this is going to be what people are going to use nationwide so that you have something worse than Plessy versus Ferguson because at least Plessy versus Ferguson had to be separate and equal. You're going to have separate and unequal. You can create these type of environments where there are a bunch of uh, poor black people concentrated in these neighborhoods and they have to magically come up with the money to fund their education and their schools and all these other types of things. And keep their homes and because keep their homes. eventually once housing gets sparse in other places, they're going to get pushed out by gentrification. Right. But wait, this last clip that we're talking about dynamics, I mean... Could it really be an underlying racial dynamic? This isn't that person speaking of color? Yes, it's a person of color. So maybe even like that internal racism that happens with people of color, being mm-hmm. able to use these same dominant narratives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that are putting people in, in categories and spewing out fear. It is. It's They're talking about home ownership, which mm-hmm. is... Sometimes, yes, it, it's a racial lens, too, but it's also that class economic piece. And when black people sometimes get to a certain space and a certain class, it's a protection mode. Right. And or it's a, maybe they lost sight of it. Maybe now they've got a little bit of power. Maybe they're building a coalition for their own personal things. Mm. I, these dynamics, we've seen them in the past as, you know, when folks get a position of power, too. So. I don't I could hear already hear the defenses of no this person is of color that's not what she means yeah and I, I that's a that brings up a conversation too that and I Jesse and I talk about it all the time in terms of some of the choices that black leaders make or maybe the lack of stance or choices that they make in terms of our local government because um, and not this person in particular but just in general black politicians have it so much harder because if they want to get reelected they have to make safe decisions and decisions that are gonna appeal to a greater field of people that don't always identify with pro-black or pro-equity choices. And so you end up either being a strong pro-equity one-term politician Mm -hmm. 
or you end up being something different. I think that's important <laughs> that to notice, especially when in, in going back to this council person and talking about this individual's dynamic that mm-hmm. does play into that because she is the first black woman representing this district. And it's a very affluent district. Mm-hmm. And when you think about who she represents and how does how do you have that conversation? And it very much to me, when I, when I hear you talking, Chelsea, the word that resounds is bootstrap. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about how it, it fundamentally comes back to class and, yeah. and um, socioeconomic class because, yeah, to her point, what she's saying is that everybody pays this equally. All homeowners pay this equally. But when we talk about race, then we go back into, okay, but who are homeowners? Mm -hmm. But then also it's still setting up people that have the money of property owners versus not property owners against each other. Mm -hmm. Right. And playing into this dynamic of, well, it's an equal law that impacts people equally. The only problem is that people just need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps Mm -hmm. and just go own a home. Mm -hmm. Right. Obviously. Yeah. And it, it plays into a mentality that I could definitely see being one that is going to resound with the, the same, even though she is a person of color, it's going to resound with a white constituency that hears a dog whistle. And yeah. says, yeah, that's what they should do. Mm-hmm. Stop yeah. being, what are, what are the words, Alan? Lazy, complacent. Shiftless. Shiftless. Idle. Idle. And and build those and, bricks with straw. Yeah. Stop and, complaining. <laughs> <laughs> and and with property owners, right? It's it's this uh, this legacy effect, right? I mean, as quickly as 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 gentrification can undo a, a group of lower income people's homeownership, right? It takes them that much longer. Uh, it took them that much longer to get there in the first place, uh-huh. right? It's a lot harder to build that kind of equity um, and wealth uh, yes. just even to get to that level. Um, and so you have this kind of hangover effect from mm. racist uh, discriminatory laws right. uh, that get then kind of swept away also by the the other force of gentrification, which often and, empowers- And growth. Yeah, growth and, and, and economic development of a particular kind usually, right? right? And, and and as much as economic development and growth is important for a city, right? The, the, if you allow it just to kind of go unfettered, it can really destroy a bunch of neighborhoods. And and this dynamic that Chelsea, you're talking hashtag about- Richmond. Hashtag Richmond. The, the dynamic of, you know, this person and, and who she represents is also overlaid on this council representative, right? It's district by district stuff in a dramatically segregated city, like right. many cities are, right? Where it's just the district that you represent is is not a diverse district. And that's mm. the case for most of our districts, right? They represent mm. wealth or not. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And you get these, um, mm. you know, th- where, where it's almost like the responsible thing for a, a council person to do is not look at the broad picture, to not look about, think about equity, but what's best for my constituents. And huh. if your constituents are a bunch of affluent white people, then you might come to decisions that, that don't necessarily benefit the city as a whole. Right. And, mm. yeah. and I, I think it's really interesting. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Uh, to go back to 1977 when we built the, made the council districts mm-hmm. and talk about how it was specifically intentionally made of nine districts where you have four white, four black, and one quote unquote jump ball. This is how we're set up to govern is to pit white and black people against each other in the districts. No, I was just going to say that having a woman of color, the head of a district of mostly affluent white people is why we see certain dynamics play out of her having to explain her racial identity in Mm -hmm. an an article, right? I don't, how how many other council people are out there giving their whole life story, making front page news on a pretty prominent 
a magazine here in the city. Well, it's because she has to explain herself almost <sighs> in this piece, right? Right. So it's just again having to maneuver where you sit and those choices that those in leadership are making. And also, you know that classism is also a caste system that operates in America as well mm-hmm. and that goes you know across like all throughout time like so in this book the Detroit school busing case they give an example of this um, in 1941 it was something called the Sojourner Truth Housing Project and at this point it was mostly just all white coalitions home associations that were trying to push uh, poor black people out but what's specific about this one it was the Seven Mile Fenelon neighborhood um, where a bunch of white people were resistant to having a uh, black public housing built and they actually built a coalition with black middle class homeowners because they were afraid of what it would do to the property values of their house. Wow. And so and so and as you study the the work of Charles Hamilton Houston as he gets into like labor and all this classism and things like this, um and his ment- and his mentee Thurgood Marshall talks about this too. It's 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 known that Thurgood Marshall jokingly called the NAACP the National Association for the Advancement of Certain People because it has to do a lot of colorism and a lot of classism within the ranks there. And when you actually study while Charles Hamilton Houston uh, actually left the NAACP, now he did die pretty young, but a lot of times people teach and say, well, he was dead. That's why he wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. But when he actually started going out and seeing like the terrible state of that that houses and schools are in in poor black neighborhoods, he got tired of having to ask the, the board in this whole like classist state of like, oh, you need to be doing these types of things and saying that this is what I really want to focus my work on. Um, and I'm going to bring Thurgood with me and show him what it's what it's like so that you're not indoctrinating the next one to have this classist lens that comes through it. And then you have to think about even like the expiration date on people's compassion because people are talking about homeowners and renters. But if you understand about this little thing that happened called the recession as well, right, uh, where uh, I think it was almost saying like 40, up to 46 percent of black wealth was wiped out because most of it was in homes. And so mm-hmm. I would love to hear constituents who either because of the recession or also because of neighborhoods getting flipped and being pushed out. And so it's interesting that they talk about these poor homeowners, we're we're fighting for them, but then you're talking about renters. But if you talk about this three years ago, some of the people who were pushed out might now be renting. So where's the compassion for the people who were pushed out of home ownership, right, by just profit by all means necessary, right, that now are maybe renting because of the types of things where they got pushed out. And so where do they fall in this if we're really talking about loving all people and all homeowners and people of color and things like that, too? And, and even recognizing that renters still like it's not like all these people, all these landlords are so graciously saying, "Oh, I'll cover. Don't worry, I'll cover this." They're just baking that into people's rent, and that stuff's going up too. So it's right. like they're still paying, but they get the worst out of it, where they're paying paying as if they're landowners, but they they're not. And so this goes back to like historically Bacon's Rebellion, right? About uh, a fusion coalition building, right? Between Native Americans, African Americans, poor white people understanding that, yo, we're all messed up because these people who had the audacity to call themselves the great men Mm -hmm. were literally like, so that's literally what it was. It wasn't general assembly, it was like, it's the great men because we own land Mm -hmm. and whatever. And they build this coalition against them because they're understanding that, yes, there's a racist class system, that's caste system that's happening here too, but it's also a classist one as well. Yeah. And and so it's like, this is something that you see throughout history. And so instead of having that fusion coalition against the people who are start, start understanding and experiencing poverty together, it's, well, if they get this, you're gonna lose this, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if we fund their schools, you're gonna lose your house versus like, okay, but why do we have all these institutions mm-hmm. that we're not really taxing in ways that we could, or why it was only limited to, I have to cut off my right hand or my left hand. Makes me sense. Right. Makes me think of sharecropping. I think yeah. it's a 
a great place to kind of move into the last couple minutes here of our discussion, because yeah. especially talking about looking at the future, what does equity look like in this conversation? Mm-hmm. How do we talk about efficiency? How, when What are the, the, the little things that we can all kind of take away from here of how do we have a conversation that are about legitimate concerns when there's a history of how these words and legitimate concerns have been bastardized to be abused in a way that upholds white supremacy? Well, I know one thing that we haven't really talked about about was the different layers of advocacy that happened from issue from different people having different issues with the budget and something moving forward in the future I'd like to see is less issue based advocacy at council people came in their certain color what they wanted to talk about and what they wanted in the budget instead of what we're talking about this larger view of what that is and when I think about equity and I think about allies, I, I want to hear and see more allies not just talk about their issue, but how it would is going to help the greater the greater whole of everything and not just come up, say their one little piece, ignore the larger elephant in the room that everybody else and 100 um, different people that have to voice their opinion, there are for, but realizing that this, we all have to be thinking in the larger view and not just what our one issue close to our heart is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, building these broader based coalitions for really for government, right? Right. For funding, properly funding government. So that if you're saying we're for the schools, but that means you should take away from public transit. Right. Or that Wait means that you should yeah. cut social services. And that's fine as long as we get our school money. Mm-hmm. When what you're doing is, I mean, all the arguments that Alan was making and before, like about efficiency, mm-hmm. how are you actually being efficient? Right. If you're going to say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll put all this money in the schools, but nobody can get there because the buses don't run anymore. <laughs> right. um, or, you know, there, there's no wraparound services for families that are struggling so that the kids actually can get to school and not be suffering from trauma. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to think of it as and more globally. And I think from the advocacy piece is super important because government workers, government officials are not going to do it themselves. Right. But you would hope that with some some help and and from some kicks in the butt from advocates that maybe some folks on council could think about that, right? Instead of thinking about, well, what do my constituents need? What's the narrow view here for my district? Like what's gonna help the city and how do I make that case to my constituents? A little bit more leadership from individual council members rather than just following the particular interests, the parochial interests of their constituents. Well, not just that, but the constituents that actually reach out to you. Right. That, that's my issue with all of this. It, I think what's mo- really important is that we listen. And so when you have, if, if you do the research on your district and you know the, the demographic of who you're representing, that doesn't always, that's not always the person who calls you all the time because the person who needs the most help is working two jobs and is making decisions about how they're feeding their family the next day. They don't have time to be out representing themselves in this type of advocacy because they can't attend city council meeting because the bus doesn't stop at, at their stop anymore, you know, and all these different things. And so for me, it's about thinking about the lesser of us all to bring that person up because if you're just just trying to serve. I mean, th- that's what is about serving the greater good. And so it that requires listening because these concerns come to council and what you have is people not believing these needs mm-hmm. and, and needing to have these things reaffirmed to them with receipts. Mm-hmm when all you have to do is look around in your district and listen. The conversation has to happen. And have compassion for and other, have people's, compassion. other people's human experiences. Yes, like you, you have to listen, you have to be willing to hear it, and you have to be able to, like you said, have empathy for what is going on. And you just can't write it off as, well, 
that's a special case. No. And, and, you know, and it's about examining everybody's lenses. You know, not everybody's perfect. And and there's so many things that we talk about that, you know, um, just kind of get glazed over. People don't pay attention to. This has nothing to do with it, but it's a great example. We love Parker. Parker has been, done a great job as a representative for his district. And he's really good about researching and doing other things. But he couldn't see the blatant racism in him not stepping down after he moved out of his district. That it was his blinders were on to that. And it's taken up until now for that to be at the forefront. And when people would talk to or, or, or put that out there, it was like that was removed. And then somebody was just trying to get him mm-hmm. because he's a good person. But in the end, it's about if you're going to be an advocate for what you're doing, you can't be an advocate this week and stand up for women or poor people or people of color or uh, uh, sexual assault victims or whatever the case may be and then next week when it's something different or it affects someone that you know you know or or it, it, it or the adverse you know affects someone that's a friend of yours or something like that then it's an issue and you lose that advocacy like you've got to be about it all the time mm-hmm. and not just decide to join you know city democratic committees more recently because it's better for your overall narrative. Yeah. It to me the advocacy piece is really is really clear too of we need to be able to hear more voices. There needs to be more intentionality for council to hear voices. We know budget season is coming up. It's not a surprise to anyone. Where is the outreach plan for council to be prepared with what needs to be in these budgets before we have the very dramatic meeting? Got a right whole before. year. Yeah. Got a whole year. And sometimes I think in that way where people can be blind to that too is honoring all forms of communication because sometimes when people are saying like I'm tired of the tweets it's like would Mm -hmm. you ever say I'm tired of people in my whatever um, I was about to say congregation constituency like Mm -hmm. emailing me I'm tired of the phone calls you would never say that because you say like yo that's your that's your job right your your job is to do to understand to to work through and understand those nuances and um, even what you were saying about like how a lot of these listening sessions or whatever are still based on people with a 9 to 5 job and different things like that Mm -hmm. like there's a um, interesting book called Citizenville by Gavin Newsom. You but, better come on with these books. But um, come he's on. talking about like capturing technology to actually make. Now this is a good use of efficiency. Actually making um uh, local government more efficient and saying like why why with people having the internet why can't you have something like a message board right? Well not even having the internet but like having message boards and saying like instead of like come to this place voice your concern da 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 right? Like board. put it on a message board right? Even with PTA meetings right? Like right. some people are working like okay we're gonna. We're going to close it at whatever in two weeks. We're going to go through, get all this. Like you're expecting all ways of how people engage and come to right. this process and experience based on how different limits and different things like that are. And so I That's think like. equity. Yeah. Access. But, but it. it but like justice is blind, equity is not, right? Equity has to be able to see. Like you think of justice, you think of like the blind lady holding whatever. It's like right. now equity has to be able to see and understand the nuances and understand where people are coming from. You, you cannot, one of my pet peeves is when people say equity and then the word regardless. Like you will never have equity and be regardless of the history that has happened, of the systems and the things that have been designed, right? Um, so if you're really going to talk about equity, you have to have the um, nuance, the patience and the humility to understand where people are coming from. One thing that comes to mind with me when I talk about equity is leadership. And this is something I've probably been like ranting about on Twitter a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Everyone's probably like, Jesse, why don't you talk about financial numbers? You keep like talking about leadership. And this discussion that we've had today is really why. Mm-hmm. Because we can't have these underlying conversations about numbers mm-hmm. until we have people. And when I say leaders, I don't just mean elected leaders. Every single person in this room, every single person in this city is a 
leader because we're modeling behavior in every single time that we're communicating with people. Mm -hmm. And that's with our elected officials and people respond to our actions. The only thing that I can control are my personal actions. That goes for everybody. And so when I can't control other people, all I can do is look at myself. And to me, when we talk about equity, I think that that's where it comes in and starts is with looking at what is a leader and what are we electing in leadership, but also what are we being as individual leaders? And I think going all the way back to BC times. <laughs> yes, Alan. <laughs> to really time travel it together. <laughs> I think that something that stuck out for me in this conversation is just the call to make sure that we are not unintentionally being a pharaoh with our actions. Because just because it is something that is easy and convenient for you from your position in a situation doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do and that it's the responsible thing to do. When we talk about building bricks with straw and talking about impossible tasks, the parallel that stuck out in my mind is RPS. this referendum. Oh, bingo. A school referendum, a school modernization referendum that says fully fund schools. But don't raise the taxes. But don't raise taxes. That one is one piece, especially when we talk about these tax things now where, you know, this is the narrative that we've all been hearing of a campaign for how long saying, well, you need to do it without taxes. That we even then saw it come up now now in the final debate of the budget of, well, we proved it to you. Like this was council's stance. We proved it to you. We could do this without raising the real estate tax. And I look at this and I look at the budget that our mayor presented as a move of equity, as, as a black man standing up and getting frankly belittled by the people that we as people have elected to represent us, did actions that personally to me, as a, as someone that's a constituent of one of those people that was not involved in this at the end of the day, it's city council. And I feel represented by my entirety of city council when I'm sitting there looking at headlines. I see these things stoking dog whistle racist things and other people and narratives about the city. When we talk about, does Chesterfield want to help us? Why the hell would they want to help us? Hmm. Why? What, what are we doing? Why, why are we actively hurting ourselves? And I'm not saying don't question the mayor. I'm not saying don't question city council. I'm saying take a step around and look at ourselves being leaders and say, are we making the easy decision because we're being a pharaoh unintentionally? Hmm. Because we're not stepping into somebody else's shoes to have compassion for their humanity. And fundamentally, like racism is the dehumanization of people. That is where we need to understand and get back to the humanity of people. And that includes acknowledging and accepting and believing other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. Because what we proved in this moment of we can fully fund schools, allegedly, without raising real estate taxes is that it's palatable to us as Richmonders to celebrate raising a cigarette tax that impacts disproportionately brown people in our city, mm -hmm. poor people in our city, and an emissions tax that impacts <coughs> artists. But we're going to protect, yet again, property owners and property owners that are higher class, that are more frequently white in our city. And we're going to sit there and say, at the end of all of this, this is equality and equity. Ultimately, when I hear council people saying there are no other solutions, saying to people, well, you tell me what the answer is. The answer to people's issues here is an economic solution of economic opportunity. And what I think that we all need to recognize of don't be a pharaoh unintentionally is that unless we're finding ways and actively working to address the solutions of getting out here and figuring out what is the answer to jobs? What is the answer to a living wage? I've seen our mayor present things. I've seen our mayor present an actual living wage, which arguably it's $12 an hour. I'm still going to say that that's not a living wage. We see affordable housing that's being presented from our mayor. But what solutions, other than looking at your constituent at church on a Sunday as a white person and saying this can't be done, playing on decades, hundreds, we were in BC. <laughs> <laughs>
of just stoking these preconceived notions that are based on stereotypes of racism that are based on dehumanizing people Mm -hmm. because you're fearful of what? Of losing your station in life. This is where we come back to this either or mentality. Mm -hmm. That's not a way to win. The only winning proposition is to stop this zero sum game and start recognizing how we all are individually leaders and that we cannot make anything great again if we're not willing to have compassion for everybody that we're encountering and other people's places in life. So like to me, is like what I would want for equity. Like when we talk about that discussion going forward, like next year, it's just an overall challenge to everybody in this city, not just our elected leaders, mm-hmm. but just recognize what are we doing individually in this conversation. Let my people go. <laughs> just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think what you said was very important. And another thing about that text in Exodus 2 is it talks about there was a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, who was someone who actually like was of Hebrew descent, Mm -hmm. who actually helped to put them in a good situation. But because there was an ignorance, right, the memory of those people died. Uh, There was an ignorant of the masses that allowed that to happen. There weren't people who were standing up to people and saying, why are we oppressing the people who built our society? So there was an ignorance there. And as James Baldwin talks about, the most dangerous combination is ignorance and power. That that cocktail of destruction is very good. So you might say, I don't have power, right? But you have a whole lot of ignorance that you can work with because you can't hold anyone accountable if you're ignorant to what the issues are. Especially not in the the former capital of the Confederacy. And I actually even just, I have to say this because as soon as you started talking and we talk about ignorance and we talk about dynamics and not recognizing it, when I also make an allusion of a Pharaoh and I completely Hebrew and Judaism Mm -hmm. and the role of anti-Semitism within also these conversations with race, because Mm -hmm. I, I also want to recognize that we talked earlier about making mistakes unintentionally my own ignorance of not acknowledging the fact that I did just draw what could be a very hurtful illusion to some people of a, a pharaoh and then also a referendum in our city that was put forth by somebody of Hebrew descent yeah. and that is definitely not Right. the impression mm-hmm. that right. I ever want to portray because right. that is not it at all. But I think that that also is a very, very big dynamic, mm-hmm. especially in that discussion about the referendum and that individual in particular that did put that forth because that is that is something that has come up mm-hmm. in conversation that is a very difficult thing to speak about because yeah. when you're talking about people who have been slaves and what does that mean of a common ground of people? And then also what does that mean for me as a white person that who's not Jewish? Right. But you know, Jesse, bringing it back around to the beginning of the conversation is being able to look inside and have that reflection right. and and notice when you're falling victim to the dominant conversation, the dominant right. narrative and, right. and seeing that within yourself and fixing it, taking an accountability, acknowledging it. Like you just did. Yeah. That's why you, that's why I rock with you, I, bitch. You know what? <laughs> I would, I, I'm so like, I'm, I appreciate all because I'm like so glad that you also said that because like, I just, that is not it. Yeah, no, it's not. But no. there there has been a lot of actual talk around even trying to criticize that because during the same time when that conversation came out, that, that actual person was posting, you know, about, you know, the leader of the Women's March that was removed because, or, or there was a lot of controversy around it because, you know, she said some uh, anti-Semitic things and, and it was just like, so now everybody's afraid to say anything about the referendum because they feel like they're going to be talking targeted or, or they're going to get some something tagged to them, which is not true. We're talking about a piece of legislation or, a, you know, something that clearly has uh, has deeply rooted racism within it. Mm-hmm. Right. 
based on the person it was presented to and why and the way it was worded either do it or say you can't yeah man navigating this thing I'm telling you it's rough it's hard it's tough but the conversations have to be had and if we don't have the conversations we'll never get there part of the issue is people you just have to sit down and we all have to take off our gloves and we have to put our vulnerability on the table but we can't have people at the table still throwing jabs because they feel like they're at a place of greater privilege and more power and all these other things when you have people of color and and minorities at the table saying this is what I need from you this is what it's going to take I don't know if we have the solution because we went through this whole process of being dehumanized in this country and and I don't see anybody passing out any therapy any treatment for PTSD or anything else and so black people have which, which is so ironic to me that we still get this pull yourself up by the bootstraps what the hell you think we've been doing all this damn time mm-hmm. yeah. where, where, can we get some boots where was it? boots <laughs> I mean can we get our feet back right come to damn right like, you know what I'm saying Look, I mean we could talk about this all day this is what else have black people done what have minorities done but come to this country be, be brought to this country mm-hmm. and then you end up here and we're continuing you know just continuing to thrive and, and try to flourish and then you have all these other systems as a result that just kind of sweep your feet from under you and you're like well let me let me recorrect this okay well I can't buy a house but I can rent so I'll rent as long as I can but I'm gonna teach my child I'm gonna save and work three jobs to send my child to college so my child can afford to buy a house but then my child gets to college and they're taking out seven million dollars worth of loans to get to this certain place and then the government won't give you any forgiveness and you my child's gonna pay for going to school for the rest of their life and it's it's like this continuation of always trying to catch up Mm -hmm. always trying to catch up but the narrative is always still as a black person you're supposed to be pulling yourself up by your bootstraps what the y'all think we've been doing yeah i mean dr king um everyone loves i have a dream speech when he talks about my dream has become a nightmare Hmm. is when he talks about because people were asking him well all these other immigrants have come and and made it and and been able to you know move up why can't black people do it and he said because it was a stigma placed on us right because not only that but because some of these minorities that come here identify as white and y'all accept them as white and if you i'm gonna speak on it yeah you if you some of these minorities come and you recognize them as as the white society as equals even though you talk about them and laugh about them and culturally appropriate their culture and and still you know giggle and laugh at different parts of their culture but you still allow them to assimilate into your into your society because you feel like they bring something that's valuable Asians are good for this or uh, Indians are good for this or so-and-so is good for this but because you have historically dehumanized people of color brown people and black people there's an issue with that and so until you recognize the damage that's been done there there's this woman I can't think of her name now but I love her and she talks about something that's so important. Black people talk about the trauma that we experience, even in this generation, that's removed from slavery. And we talk about all these things in society that have like affected us and how we're still catching up. And but nobody ever talks about the plight or the lack of empathy or the damage that's done to white people being on the other side of that oppression and what that does to their empathy level, to their understanding. And so you have pictures, you think back to pictures of lynchings and you have kids there watching. What does that do? What type of mental state does that put a small white child standing there watching a black man be mutilated, be gutted, killed, burned, lynched, all these things? And then in her mind, what does that create in these children's minds or or these adults? Those things are deep rooted and they continue to be passed on. And so if I'm as little as something that's that you could literally dehumanize me to not mean that you could it could be a picnic. That's literally where that word comes from. It's a picnic. It's a celebration to watch the lynching of this black person when they've done absolutely nothing.
nothing wrong. It's really just, again, that, that protection of, of that white female innocence, whatever. That's another conversation. But how that affects people, that's still deeply rooted into into white society. And so until, until we can break that part down, we can't get you to come to the table and have empathy or understand that. Until we can unwork those things, you know, we can't be the only people at the table with vulnerability saying these are the things that we need and we all have to come together when you're still at the table going, but I'm better than you. Or you're not working hard enough. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or my pain is for like, like, like pain swapping, suffering yeah. swapping, oppression yeah. swapping. And I think that's where we need to also come to a place of that. Yeah, you know, me as a woman, I, I experience yeah. marginalization on a daily basis. Right. I experience misogyny. I experience sexism. That said, no. why do I need to compare my trauma and my pain to anybody <laughs> else's? Right. It, like, let's all accept the fact that, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. It's it's bad for everybody and everybody has their own differing varying experiences mm-hmm. with it. That means we need to work together. Yeah. Because there's a bigger problem here. Mm-hmm. And the more that we let and not have these kinds of conversations where we can talk about these intersections mm-hmm. where completely ignorantly make comments and keep going, like we're not and able learn from it. and learn from it because these are things that are reality that we have to figure out how to grapple with. And if we can't have some type of conversation about it, we're not going to be able to have a, a, a substantive policy debate where we're actually making equitable policy changes because mm-hmm. we can't talk about the real issues yeah because we can't we can't even acknowledge the real issue it's mm-hmm. not it's not even on the table there's a there's a great book that talks about what you were talking about friend uh it's called working towards whiteness mm-hmm. um and it talks about uh how immigrants were able to graduate into this class of, of whiteness right and when i talked earlier about bacon's rebellion but what happened after that with the slave codes is actually the first time that white actually appears in legal documentation in virginia is after that coalition was built they set up a, a tiered system where poor white people, they could just work their debt off and graduate into whiteness. Mm-hmm. Native Americans, they could have a limited tenure to their slavery unless they were caught collaborating with black people because then their status became lifetime, mm. just like with black people. Hmm. And you see throughout this period as people are developing that there is this concentrated attack against the coalition building, against the fusion politics that, that would have people to come to that understanding of saying that, no, I'm not going to graduate into whiteness. I'm going to deconstruct it. So with that, if anybody has any one sentence for us to wrap up, I really want to say I appreciate these discussions because I think these Mm. is how we start. And I appreciate the vulnerability that everybody came with and recognizing that we all make mistakes and have different perspectives and we can grow from it and learn Mm -hmm. and have future conversations towards an actual equity lens. I mean, I'll start just because I'll I'll be pessimistic. Next year, it'll be an election year that'll make all this so much harder. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that some things will be better. I'm hopeful that that there might be some lessons learned from this. And, and, and maybe, maybe unfortunately, that puts more um, responsibility or emphasis on the sort of outside advocacy Chelsea was talking about, just because we might be less likely to get it from the inside next year. But we'll see. And maybe that will set the tone for, for going forward after that. I would agree. I think that that might be how people decide to run and how people decide to vote is really where I think maybe this equity conversation might have more of an impact next year in election year. And let's start putting some power behind being okay with electing one-term politicians if they're going to get it right in that one damn term. Maybe we don't need these career politicians. Maybe we don't need the son of a blah, blah, blah and the daughter of a hoo-hoo-hoo. Maybe we need one good, strong-ass one-term politician to get it right that one term. Then we'll worry about the next term after that. One term at a time. I just want to see and hear about other young Richmonders running and holding 
these people in these seats accountable and showing that there are other narratives and people that are already out in Richmond have counter narratives quicker to the tongue and don't have to be reminded or reflected or shouted out in a media. There are people that have an equity lens already built in and it's important that we find them, prop them up and support them. Yeah, I just would encourage everybody to extend their lens. I understand that the working poor is real. I grew up as that. I'll never forget when my dad lost his job and we were trying to figure out how we were going to stay in our house and mm. when my dad brought food home from a food bank and me being like, oh man, we're poor, you know what I mean? Understanding that we have to extend our lens because I can understand and come from that context and still tutor and teach kids and seeing that there's a whole nother level beyond my lens. Mm-hmm. And instead of getting into that whole, well, I can graduate into another caste system, forget y'all, having the courage uh, the moral courage to stay in that place of tension and work and to organize for true justice for mm-hmm. for all and not just being so concerned about where I'm coming from. And just just reminder that Dr. King also said that the, a budget is a moral document. And so you can say what you don't want to hear or you want whatever, but it's, at some point it goes beyond intent and it goes to impact. And we are responsible for the impact that we make, whether we were willingly or unwillingly operating in the realm of a pharaoh. That gave me such, so, so, such strong lily vibes right there, mm. just then. My last thought is an amalgamation of everything that you guys are saying. I think it's time to forge a new Richmond way because the 400-year-old Richmond way mm, mm, mm. is not working. I think that's a great sum up. So I appreciate everybody again. Thank you all for coming and taking part of the discussion. Fran, do you want to take us out? I got you. Flint still has dirty water. RPS is still not fully funded. And Richmond is most certainly still racist, but we're working on it. Talk to y'all next week. Thanks for joining us today for RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. If you'd like to continue this conversation, well, you're in luck because this conversation continues on all of our podcast platforms after this episode airs. We had so much good content that we just couldn't cram it all into one hour-long episode, so we just kept on rambling for your benefit. Make sure you check out our Twitter page and all of our social media at RVA Dirt to get the deets on how you can continue this conversation with us. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. 